0: The following is a sermon from the Edgington Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Taylor Ridge, Illinois. Well, let me invite you to open up your copy of the scriptures and turn with me to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. We are taking a pause in Colossians and going to Acts chapter 2. It's probably a good thing I'll say this when Kenzie can't hear me because it involves her. We did something the other day that we've never done before. Uh, and it made me feel very old, okay? We decided to pause a movie in the middle and finish it another night. (laughs) Anybody ever done that before? Uh, Yeah, he's like, let's just go to bed. Uh, (laughs) So we started doing that, and it's quite the thing to admit. But, you know, there's a natural stopping point at times, uh, but there are also times where There's an awkward stopping point. You wouldn't stop a movie right in the best part or right in the middle of a rising drama or tension. There are sometimes natural points to pause. And we're studying Colossians. We're at a natural point to pause because we're going to take up Palm Sunday and then Easter. And the next text in Colossians is really the key hinge text for the rest of the book. So if we were to do that text now and then pause it would be kind of a really awkward way to start up again. So rather than pausing at an inopportune time, uh, we pause now and we'll pick up Colossians after Easter. So that gives us another opportunity to, to take up an issue or a topic that we need to do from time to time as we think about the church. So if you haven't already, turn with me to Acts, the book of Acts in the New Testament after the Gospel of John in Acts chapter 2. It gives us this opportunity on a first Sunday when we celebrate the sacrament, to reflect on some of the most basic truths of the life of the church and to reflect again about uh, what is a church and what is it for and what does the church do. And as I'm saying these things, maybe I would ask you, how would you describe this church to somebody else who perhaps is asking? Or if you were attempting to give a description to a friend or a neighbor or a co-worker, and they ask you if you go to church, and yes, and what kind of church? Well, you have an opportunity to say something about the kind of church that you go to. And you have a number of options when you go to describe the church. There are some people who, in describing whether this church or another particular church, they would use specific descriptors, and they would use particular identifiers, such as it's a Presbyterian church, it's an evangelical church, it's a Reformed church, it's a Protestant church, etc. These different kind of markers as identifiers to say what kind of church it is. There are other people who, rather than go to these particular identifiers, they refer to and describe churches according to these various sliding scales. And they talk about Churches being, you know, new churches to old churches or good churches to bad churches or boring churches to interesting churches or faithful churches to unfaithful churches or traditional to contemporary. They introduce any number of these kind of sliding spectrums to say, well, my church falls somewhere in this spectrum from these various poles to try to say what kind of church you go to. Well, I have a favor to ask of you as your pastor that the next time you're asked to describe this church, uh, whether it's you're being asked to, or it's you're kind of uh, volunteering the information, I hope you will answer the church uh, the, the question: What kind of church is this? With this answer, uh, Edgington is an ordinary church. An ordinary church. I would be delighted as your pastor for you to describe this church as an ordinary church. Why? Why? I want us to see that together in the Scriptures this morning. If you've got your Bible open there in Acts 2, let's pray, and we will hear God's Word. Heavenly Father, and we come now to You, believing that You have the words of eternal life, and as Peter confessed, to whom else shall we go? In a world full of exorbitantly confident opinions of men and women, in a world full of hubris and arrogance, in a world not lacking of opinion and commentary, Lord, we find ourselves often weary, and we want to hear you speak to us today from the Scriptures. So, Lord, as, as your apostles put uh, these words to page by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, uh, we pray that that same Spirit would rest upon us, that we might hear these words as they were recorded for us, but then also that we would hear them freshly in our generation as your word of truth, as your will for your people to bless us, to strengthen us, to give us conviction, give us courage. Lord, bless your word to your people today. Give us uh, eyes to see and ears to hear. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're reading from Acts 2 at verse 42 under the heading, The Fellowship of the Believers. And we'll just read this grouping here through the end of chapter 2. Acts 2 and verse 42. This is the Word of God. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades. The Word of God abides forever. He writes truth on our hearts today. What you have here in Acts chapter 2, at the beginning of the book of the Acts of the Apostles, uh, is a description of the early church, uh, the earliest church there in Jerusalem after the day of Pentecost when the Christian believers started going about their lives as Christians even before they were called Christians. Uh, they're not going to be called Christians till later on in the book of Acts. And even when they're called Christians, it's actually a pejorative term. It's a mocking term. Uh, but before they're even known as Christians, what you have here in Acts chapter 2 is a description of the early church. And I want to say about that, that in some ways, the church today is very dissimilar or unlike the early church. And there are other ways in which the church today should be very similar to the early church. And in this passage we have something of the dissimilarity, but most importantly, I want to highlight the similarities between the early church from the early days of Pentecost and the connection to what the church is today or how the church should be operating today, this description of the church of Jesus Christ. Now, speaking first about the dissimilarity to just explain something, clarify, and move on to the similarity... I think you can notice in this text that after the day of Pentecost, which is in Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit descended upon the people like a fire and it, it produced these signs and wonders, these miraculous things that are speaking about specifically in verse 43, this awe that comes upon every soul as many wonders and signs are being done through the apostles. Uh, that is to say, that the apostles had particular gifts the Holy Spirit came upon the apostles in particular ways in order to confirm the ministry of the apostles because they were the first generation of the preachers of the gospel. After Christ ascended, He sent the Holy Spirit to empower especially all Christians, but especially the apostles to do these signs and wonders to confirm the authority of their ministry. So when you read about miraculous signs and wonders happening in the early church, it was because they were living in the days of the apostles when the apostles' ministry needed to be confirmed. We don't see these types of miraculous signs and wonders happening in the church today because the apostles aren't around anymore. The apostolic era was a particular era when their ministry was confirmed by these miraculous acts of the Holy Spirit As the apostolic period comes to a close and the scriptures are given to the church, the emphasis becomes less upon miraculous signs and wonders and more on the ordinariness of biblical teaching and biblical revelation. So in some ways, the church is dissimilar or unlike the first century church in the sense that there are no more apostles. Now, I'll say quickly that there will oftentimes be those present their ministries or present their teachings and call themselves an apostle, which is an incredible statement, uh, an incredible concerning statement, but there are no more apostles alive today. Uh, There were only a select few. Uh, There were 11 after Judas died and then Matthias was chosen to replace him in Acts chapter 1 and then Paul was added in Acts chapter 9. So there was only ever 13 apostles. They are not here anymore And so the church doesn't look like the apostolic church in that sense. But the dissimilarity or the way in which the church today is unlike the first century church is much smaller compared to the massive ways that the church today should be similar to or like the first century church, but it's important to identify the dissimilarity first. So, speaking then then about how is the church today very similar to the first century church. What do we see in Acts chapter 2 that very much fits the pattern of what the church is still like today? They were involved in what we can see, especially we're going to be focusing on verse 42. Acts 2 verse 42 gives these very ordinary actions of the life of the first century church. Look again at verse 42, which says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and prayers. These things in verse 42 are what we summarize to be the ordinary means of God's grace in His church. They are the ordinary everyday realities that God has given to the church to be busy with, to form and shape our ministry by, as the means through which our spiritual life is strengthened. The ordinary means of grace is how churches and how Christians grow. This is not a mystery in the New Testament. It's very clear and very plain that God has planned that Christian growth and strength and development would come by these ordinary means of grace. So you'll notice that there's nothing secretive, there's nothing... Incredibly exciting and dramatic that's happening there in verse 42. It's all very ordinary. And the first century church looked like this. And the 21st century church is called to look like this as well. One of the real convictions of the elders of this church is that we are to be a church shaped, modeled after the church of the New Testament not a church of our own imagination, not a church of our own making, not a church of our own design, plan, or intent, or strategy, but a church described in the New Testament, or such to say, a biblical church. So, what's the measuring stick of a church then? What's the most important thing about the church? Is the most important thing about the church uh, the color of the carpet, the personality of the pastor, the style of the music, the type of clothes that people wear? the calculated potential to find a spouse in your age range. Are these things the most important part or the most important descriptions of a church? I would say no. So what should it be? And what should the church look like? And as we see what the church has looked like in history, we want to build the bridge between the ancient world and the modern world to say... That God's plan for the church from the beginning is still God's plan for the church in this age. So what should the church look like? Well, the way we answer that question has been treated through history as describing what are called the marks of the church. The marks of the church. And in the Apostles' Creed, they're summarized as the one holy Catholic church which is the holiness and the catholicity, the universality of the church being the essential describing realities of the church. And that's true, but it doesn't touch on what should the church be doing. And out of the time of the Reformation came a clarifying word about the marks of the church being the preaching of the word, the administration of the sacraments, the maintenance of loving fellowship and church discipline. And that comes out of, right here, Acts 2.42. So... Just in this one verse, Acts 2.42, you have really God's blueprint and plans and purposes for the stuff that the church should be doing in order to be considered a faithful New Testament church. And again, as you look at them in verse 42, they're not going to jump off the page as being utterly remarkable to you. They're going to appear as completely ordinary. And that's the point because it is by the ordinariness of these external elements that God works out His extraordinary purposes for the church through the gospel. So I just want to look at them, each four, each one of these four with you briefly, and uh, highlight and talk about why they're important and how we see them applied today as an encouragement to us in the church to continue to be a faithful New Testament church. The first mark there in verse 42 is the apostles teaching. Luke when he writes the book of Acts here is using a very distinctive word there in verse 42 when they devoted themselves to the apostles teaching, the word he uses there is didache. That's very important because in 1873 there was an archbishop, a man by the name of Philotheos Berenios rummaging through a Jerusalem Most Holy Sepulcher monastery in Constantinople. The ancient world, and he discovered a manuscript. And that manuscript, which we now believe goes all the way back to the first century, is a a, a book, a writing called the Didache. Scholars debate the exact timing of this, but we can probably date it as early as A.D. 60 or 70. And it is a summary of the apostles' teaching, or the Didache. So before the New Testament writings were collected, before the New Testament as we know it was put together, the apostles had a ministry of teaching the what's and why's for the ministry of the gospel. Things about baptism, things about communion, things about the church and its fellowship, about preaching and the reading of Scripture and all the things that they did in worship in the first century, and they collected that together in a document called the Didache. And we had rediscovered that in 1873. But the point is that in the first century, the Christian believers devoted themselves to what the apostles were teaching. Again, they didn't have the New Testament yet. There was no Westminster Confession of Faith or Shorter Catechism or John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. They were wholly dependent on the apostles teaching them from the Old Testament, explaining who Jesus is, why He has come into the world, and what He means for the world as they called on people to believe in them. They were wholly dependent on the teaching of the apostles and giving their allegiance to learning from them, learning the truth, learning the doctrine of the Christian faith. They continued steadfastly in the teaching of the apostles. They were devoting themselves to this, learning about Jesus, learning who He is and what it means that He has died, what it means that He has been resurrected what it means for your life if you profess your faith in Him. That's what the apostles' teaching summarized. Not only does the Bible need to be proclaimed, it needs to be explained. And when they devoted themselves to the teaching, it was not just the proclamation, but the explanation. You know, that's why here we teach the Bible. Because in the first century, the church was committed to the teaching of the apostles. Likewise, we trust that that our teaching ministry, whether it's here in the pulpit or in Sunday schools or in varied Sunday school classrooms or different ministries that this church is conducting, we are advancing the teaching of the apostles about Jesus, about who He is and why it matters that He's come into the world. That's a very important mark of a healthy church, devoting themselves to the teaching of the apostles because that's what we're meant to know, what we're meant to understand Amid all of the opinions in the world, we want to know what is the teaching of the Scriptures summarized here as the teaching of the apostles. So first of all, teaching. Secondly, you see there in verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. Fellowship. Now, when you hear the word fellowship in a Christian church, it's a very utility word. People use it and it just means everything. They use it in such broad-brush statements, and they usually, in kind of Christian vocabulary, you say fellowship, and you think coffee and cake or coffee and donuts. Now look, I like those things. Uh, I like coffee and pastries and coffee and donuts, etc., but that's not explicitly what the word fellowship means. The word fellowship in the New Testament has this emphasis on a shared common life together. The emphasis in verse 42 is not just a fellowship, but there's a definite article, the fellowship. That's talking about the church, the gathering of Christians in community together who share commitment to one another as we commit ourselves one to another and to the Lord and profess to live together for Christ. The commitment to the fellowship was a commitment to one another, a shared spiritual union and life together as the people of God. You know, this is an important thing to remember because in an age when people think membership and their immediate thought goes to the streaming services they're subscribed to rather than physical bodies that they are a part of, the notion of membership, the notion of belonging, the notion of commitment, the notion of I see you, you see me, we look each other in the eye and we know each other, that very concept has, in many ways, fallen on a time and an expectation when people think, I don't want to have to be known. I don't want to have to have a sense of responsibility or commitment because I like to take but I don't want to give. But in the first century church, there was a a koinonia, a fellowship, a unity, a shared communion of life together and a commitment to each other, bound together by love for Christ and love for one another. Biblical fellowship, then, has more than just social hour in mind. So I want to ask, how does the church today model the notion of biblical fellowship, biblical union, biblical loving relationships tied together. There's many things that we could say about this, but just to reflect on this with you briefly, that I am continually amazed at you still, Edgington Church. Uh, you, You impress me time and time again, actually, when I visit people's homes and they tell me how many people from church have contacted them, how many cards they have received. Some people haul out the stack of cards and say, look at this, These are are from the church. These are the people of God. You cheer my heart again and again and again with the way you love one another. And some people might say, well, you know, that's just the nature of living in a small community. But I want to say, it's more than just that, isn't it? Because there's a real genuineness that because we love Christ, we love one another. Not just because we're naturally disposed to each other because we live in the same geographic area, but because Christ has united our hearts one to each other in such a way that we genuinely care about each other, which is a beautiful thing. So the New Testament says fellowship and means the loving bonds that unite a people together into shared life. You know, sometimes it's actually something of a joke or a game for me that when i visit people or talk to people, there's almost this sense of competition that who has the most recent update about somebody or something. And it's always the sense of, oh, did you hear, did you hear? And some people might say it's a little gossipy, but I think it's really just born out of a sincere desire of, I have the latest news about how Nita Darland is doing, and let me tell you. I even joking about that with Nita today that I said, well, I've been here, so I have the latest update to share And everyone loves to say, well, did you hear? Did you hear? Because we care about each other, because we are a family. So the Bible says the fellowship of believers, the apostles teaching and the fellowship. And third, it says the breaking of bread. Christians were devoted in the first century to the breaking of bread. And it might just be easy to assume that that's the exact same thing as the fellowship, because Again, usually when somebody says fellowship, they say, well, potlucks, and that's great, and I love potlucks. Church people love potlucks, and of course they do. Why shouldn't they? But the breaking of bread here means a particular thing in the book of Acts. And there's some disagreement as to what exactly it means. There are some people who say that there is a distinction between what verse 42 says about the breaking of bread and what verse 46 says about breaking bread in their homes. And there's a a sense to understand that, that what is the distinction between the commonality of sharing a meal together versus the commonality of sharing the meal together. And there's some disagreement among biblical scholars about that, but the point is that in the first century, Christians would gather. There weren't church buildings then. They gathered in their homes. They gathered in their homes and they shared their lives together as they broke bread and shared food together. And then what would normally happen is that after they had shared a common meal, instead of something of a dessert table spread out, the Lord's Supper would be the crowning moment then of the shared meal, the highlight of the meal where the bread was broken and the cup was poured out as the sacrament of Christ's body and blood. So whether you take it just to be the sharing of meals generally or the sharing of the meal the point is is that as believers gather together to submit to the apostles teaching and share fellowship bread is broken amongst them which does chiefly point us to the sacraments where god through his ordinary means of grace confirms his spiritual promises so that the gospel is made visible and sensible to us by these varied senses where we can taste, touch, smell, receive the gospel made visible as we break the bread and pour out the cup and say, Christ has died for you. So that this description of the church as a bread-breaking church is a description of a sacramental church. So just by way of application to that, let me say to you, I would prefer it that you never skip church. Right? I think it's something a pastor should say. But let me encourage you especially to extend yourself to try very hard never to miss church, especially when the Lord's Supper is being administered. Because it is at that shared table when our bond of spiritual union is most beautifully expressed. As we together eat of the broken bread and the shed blood of Jesus Christ together to say, we are one in Him. And the New Testament church was united together in this breaking of bread. The apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread, and finally the prayers. Verse 42 says, the prayers. That's probably a reference to the particular prayers that were being offered in the temple that because most of these first century Christians were actually Jewish converts, they were still practicing the ordinary routines of going to the temple at the various times and praying the various prayers that were offered in the temple. But the point is is that as an emphasis of their devotion, they continued to pray the prayers of the faithful people of God that they had learned throughout history and that they were learning in Jesus Christ. The point is, is that it emphasizes their patterns of faithful obedience to prayer, to worship, to gathering together with the people of God to pray as they submitted to the apostles' teaching, shared in fellowship, broke bread, and prayed. So notice, will you then, kind of as a a word of affirming conclusion though, that verse 42 says that these things that they did, the teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers, it's something that verse 42 says at first that they devoted themselves to. That these Christians gave their hearts to these activities as they built up the shared spiritual life among one another. They devoted themselves to this. In other words, they made it their priority They said no to other things because these things were more important. Let me encourage you, maybe even challenge you, to say no to something else because church is more of a priority to you rather than letting church always be the thing that goes by the wayside for your schedule. And it might seem strange to say that in the context where people are already gathered. And you say, well, say that to somebody else, not to me. But that's a word we all need to hear, isn't it? That the Christians were devoted one to another because their shared spiritual life mattered together. Loved ones, if you have to wake up on Sunday morning and make a decision about whether or not you're going to worship on the Lord's Day. Something has already begun to work in your heart that's a challenge. Let me encourage you to not make it a decision. To not make it a question. Let it be as natural of an impulse as even your rising that morning to say, the sun has risen. Let us go to the house of the Lord and worship Him these Christian believers were gathered together in the first century church committed to these ordinary activities devoted to these ordinary realities believing that this is where God's blessing is found I said this in Sunday school in one context I'll say it again because it applies here as well the church is God's plan for the world it's his plan A and there isn't a plan B The fellowship of the believers committed to the teaching and the fellowship in breaking bread and prayers is God's great plan for the world to advance the kingdom of Jesus Christ. So, not just individually as Christians, but corporately as the gathering of the body of Christ, there are plenty of things that we should evaluate by way of a spiritual health checkup for our church. There are plenty of things that the church does in terms of ministry and mission But all of the ministry and mission that the church does needs to be founded on these ordinary building blocks, these ordinary means of grace. Not looking to be fashionable, not looking to be approved by the wider culture, but rather seeking to be faithful according to God's plan and delighting in what is ordinary. Believing that it is through the ordinary means of grace that God works His extraordinary purposes. So, dear friends, for the sake of God's great name and for the good of our community, let us be a church continuing to affirm these ordinary realities, believing in God's extraordinary, gracious promises. And as we do, may you and your family receive His great blessing, knowing His presence and enjoying the shared life of the people of God together. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we ask now that that we, your church, uh, might receive your blessing as we commit ourselves to be faithful to you. Remind us, Father, that we are not building castles, but a kingdom. We're not looking to be a silo unto ourselves here in Edgington, as Edgington EPC, but rather we seek to be faithful as a part of the wider kingdom of God, committed to your ordinary means of grace and the extraordinary gospel of your grace through Jesus Christ. Would you bless this church, Father, as you have through many, many generations? Would you continue to have your hand upon us as we proclaim the name of Jesus and live in his hope? We pray that you would bless us and the generations of our family in this, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's sermon. If you would like more information about our church or its ministries, please visit etchingtonepc.org. May God bless and keep you.